0: Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Lord willing, we will start and finish the book today. We are going to miss a big chunk in the middle. Let's start with reading verse 1. 3 Revelation chapter 1 starting in verse 1 the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servant things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw blessed is he who reads and those who hear, the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. First of all, this is the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's uh, unique in the Bible, of course, it's the last book. It's unique among the epistles written, if you haven't been with us for the last two years, we've started a couple of years ago a series of going through the book of Acts, And as we reach certain points in the book of Acts, we would stop and we would look at one of the epistles in the New Testament that was written during that time, and just to be able to get a glimpse of the epistle in the right historical context. And we will uh, go very quickly through the epistle. Usually we would just take a single week, which is way too fast, to really get in-depth into each epistle. But it's to really give us a flavor of, of the different books, the different epistles, the letters that were written to the believers in the New Testament in the historical context. And of course the book of Revelation was written after uh, the time period in Acts has ended. In fact, we already left it behind probably around the time we, we started looking at 1st uh, and 2nd Timothy or going beyond that point. But again, it's unique. One of the things that's unique about it is the subject, most of the letters were written to a particular church to some extent to address particular issues that were happening to that church at that time. And you'd know it because the name of the book would be something like Philippians or Ephesians. This book has a different name. It's called The Revelation, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's really not, not so much written to any particular church or any particular time period in the church. It's really written about the person of Jesus Christ. It's called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals to us who Jesus is by what Jesus did. Jesus said, or oh John said, that Jesus was given things to show him. He showed John things. Well, he showed John what Jesus was going to do. And we can come to know the Lord Jesus by the things that the Lord Jesus does. If you really want to know someone, look to see what they do. In the same way, in the book of Revelation, you see what the Lord Jesus do, and for that, you get to know the Lord Jesus. You get to appreciate him for who he is. We One of the themes in our morning worship at the 9 o'clock hour, if you weren't here, was looking at the stoop of the Lord Jesus, of him coming to earth as a nobody. And really the world looked at him as a nobody, and to this day many people look at him as a nobody, and sometimes worse, because if he was a nobody, you wouldn't take his name in vain and, and cuss words and things like that, which people do. So the book of Revelation will really show him who he is the king of kings and lord of lords. People will get to appreciate him for who he is. Now, in particular, particularly the thing that he reveals about himself, really the whole Bible reveals to us who the Lord Jesus is. But in the book of Revelation really focuses on the judgment of the world, the judgment of sin. We've seen that God is, is gracious. In fact, we just sang a song. Anybody remembers what the name of the song was, the last hymn we sung? Grace. Right, Grace. We learned, we learned the meaning of the word grace. We've come to appreciate the Quality of the Lord Jesus having grace, showing grace to people. What is grace? Giving us something we don't deserve. In particular, giving us our salvation. We're sinners. We deserve to go to hell. He gives us eternal salvation instead. And we'll look at it when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, which will be today. We'll actually get to see a picture of heaven. Okay, we'll get to see what the Lord Jesus gave us for free. That's His grace. Well, the main subject of the book of Revelation is really Him showing His justice, His righteousness and His holiness in dealing with sin, which will be judgment, the destruction of the world as we know it. And talk about the eternal destruction of souls. Because that is who God is as being holy, being righteous, and being just. All right, let's continue in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This is the first vision in a series of visions that John will see in the book of Revelation. This vision is different in that we see the Lord Jesus standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And it's, it's very clear, it says on later in the chapter that that represents the church. The seven lampstands represented the seven churches in Asia at the time. This, this was, uh, these were local churches. They would have been, uh, very close to where John was. John was on the island of Patmos. He was in exile. This was the beginning of persecution or a time of persecution against Christians. And because of his testimony of Jesus, he was put in exile or in prison on an island. And these are seven churches that were in the mainland, uh, a short distance from the island he was at. And this, this uh, lampstand represents the seven churches and the Lord Jesus is standing in their midst. Now the Lord Jesus has a unique appearance here. It says that his hair was as white as snow, which really pictures age and wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire, eyes that can see through everything. And his feet were like uh, polished brass. Brass is a picture of judgment in the scriptures. It's the Lord Jesus standing as a judge in the midst of his church. The Bible says this. It says that judgment judgment must begin in the house of God. I want to be a little careful here. The Bible is very clear that once we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we're saved. We don't lose our salvation. The Lord Jesus paid for our our sins on the cross. At the same time, God is still concerned with holiness in the church. Let me go to a passage that talks about that as well. If you would, turn with me to the book of Ephesians and chapter 5. Starting in verse 25, Husbands, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I like this verse because it really puts things in a good context. The Lord Jesus purchased us from the world to be his bride, to be his beloved wife. In fact, the whole section is taken from a section about husbands and wives, telling husbands, you need to love your wife. And he tells them, love them just as Christ loves the church, the highest ideal, and gave himself for it. He died. He, He paid for our sins so that we could become his wife. That's how much he loved us. Well, it says, continues to talk about the Lord Jesus, and says that he is sanctifying and washing the church so that it will be perfect and without spot. He wants his bride to be a perfect bride for him wants his wife to be a perfect wife. So even though we're saved and, and we're told that we're going to be perfect, and uh, let's go ahead and turn to that too. 1 John, actually I'll just read it. 1 John chapter 3 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are told that, that we will be with Christ one day pure and spotless. There will be no sin on us at all. Christ died for our sins. okay? He saved us from the penalty of sins. He has given us the power to overcome sins. And one day we will be completely apart from any sin. There will be no sin in us. We're not going to be around anything that sins or offense. At the present time we still... We still have a sinful nature. We still tend to sin. We're still surrounded by sinners. I'm one too. And uh, but yet there's the promise that one day we will be like him. We will be without any spot. And there can be a danger saying, well, I'm going to be holy and pure one day, so you know, why worry about it now? Well, the Lord Jesus is concerned with it now. And this passage says that we should be too. That's what it said at the end. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We should have a desire to be holy, to be pleasing, to be a bride that that, that Christ is worthy of. That should be our desire also. All right. Back to Revelation. Chapter 1. All right. Uh, there was a mention here, actually, uh, in the verses that we just read, It says, uh, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so this whole book was to be written and it got sent to the seven churches in Asia. Well now Jesus is going going to include some personal letter to each of those churches in this larger book. And we'll be privileged to read, read those letters. And they pertain to the subject of holiness in the church. The Lord Jesus sees issues or has certain concern. In the different churches. And he's going to talk to them about it. And the same concerns exist in every church today. At least I, I know as I'm, I'm looking at these areas which I'm about to get into. A lot of them make me feel really uncomfortable. Because I can see the Lord Jesus speaking to something that's within my life too. These are all areas that as believers we tend to struggle with. And the Lord Jesus is going to be writing to the churches. He's going to tell them about it. He's going to tell them something about himself. He's going to tell them what's going to happen to them if they don't resolve this issue. And then at the end, we'll talk about... He he really gives them a vision of heaven so that they'll have something to help them through. Like I said, these these are things we are struggling with. These are things we are struggling with. And he wants to help us, to encourage us, to persevere, and to be this bride that he wants us to be, to be this holy bride that he wants us to be. All right, with that, let's start in chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. There's a pattern in, in each of the letters that we'll note. The first thing that the Lord Jesus will say in each letter is he'll say something about himself. Something that may be reveals a little bit about himself and why he's concerned with this particular issue or to help them overcome this particular issue of holiness they're dealing with. To the church in Ephesus, he talks about himself being as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Again, the seven golden lampstands represent the churches. And what Jesus is saying here is that he's very intimate with his churches. He's very concerned with what's happening. He's really in the midst. He's not like a CEO that's sitting in his air-conditioned office and he's just checking his books and wants the results. Now he's very concerned with the, the life-to-life, the day-to-day, the minute-to-minute, and really just the heart and the mind of the saints. He's not just concerned with the result. As we see, this is a church that's doing a lot of good things. They're doing a lot of good works. They're, they're testing teachings to make sure the teachings are right. They're persevering. They're doing a lot of good things. But the next thing is the Lord will share some issue, some concern he has with the church. And the issue or concern he has here is in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So here this church is doing all these good things, and yet the Lord Jesus is troubled by something. They're not doing all these good things out of love for him. And with the Lord Jesus, if they're not doing it out of love for him, it loses its value. It's not like, again, the CEO doesn't care how, you know, the poor laborer is feeling as he's meeting his quota for the day. He's just concerned that the quota is, is, is completed. Well, the Lord Jesus is very concerned with what's going on in our heart as we're laboring for Him. It reminds me of a story in the scriptures that I'm sure we've, we've all heard before about uh, Mary and Martha and the Lord Jesus was there in their house. And uh, Martha was working really hard in the kitchen, preparing food for Jesus and all the disciples. And Mary was just there at his feet, looking up adoringly at, at him. And Martha was being really bothered. I have all this work to do. You know, she is sitting there doing nothing. And she turns to the Lord Jesus and she says this to him. Do you not care that my sister left me to all this labor? Tell her to help me. Jesus answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things one thing is needed and mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her but jesus was saying what mary is doing sitting there adoring me that's really all that's necessary this this love that the lord jesus wants us to love him with that's what that's the thing that's really necessary everything else you know is great if out of love to the lord you're motivated to do good things that's wonderful but don't let your works distract you loving the Lord. If you do, it has no value to Him. It's interesting, with Martha doing all this work, she says, do you not care? She doesn't realize that the Lord Jesus loves her. That's how much she is out of contact with Him. And that's what our works can do to us. They they put a distance. I mean, if, if we allow them to, they put a distance between us. We don't love Him. To Him, our works are useless. In fact, and this is the third thing, to each church, He will He will bring up a warning of what's going to happen unless they change. And to them, the warning is in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. A lampstand, we we said it's a picture of the church. I think of it in particular, it's about the job of a, a church being a lie to the world, right? Our main job here is to be a witness to the world, to tell them about Jesus, to tell them about the gospel. The Lord Jesus is saying, look, if you don't repent, if you you don't start loving me right again, and and that being really the first thing, I'm going to take this away from you. I'm not interested in you guys doing all this work and witnessing to this world when that thing is missing in your heart. That's what I'm really after. That's what I'm really after. All right. uh, Let's move on to the next church again. We're going kind of quick here and we have to because we only have three weeks to cover this book. Uh, and feel free in your own time to go and delve more deeply into these letters. There's a lot there for us. But we'll keep on going. Church number two, verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, he who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. To the church at Smyrna, the Lord Jesus reveals himself as the one who was dead and came to life. And I love how each of these titles and descriptions of Jesus really help the church do the things that he's asking them to do. <clears throat> he's going to ask believers to lay down their lives for him here. And uh, it seems really easy to tell people what to do, but it means so much more when it comes from someone who's actually done it himself. And the Lord Jesus laid down his life for us. And so when it comes out of his lips asking us to, to be faithful to him unto death, it means a lot more. It's something I can, I, I can appreciate him asking when he himself was willing to suffer the same for me. Now that's, I already brought up the issue here. So the issue here is the church is being persecuted. Well, there's nothing technically wrong with that. The Bible says, yes, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In fact, if there's no persecution at all in my life, it should make me wonder if there's something wrong in my life. Am I living a life that's so far from being a godly life in Jesus? Is that why I'm not suffering any persecution? So there's nothing wrong with persecution. The problem with persecution is we don't like it. And because we don't like it, we tend to try to stay away from it. Well, the option here is between living godly in Christ Jesus and suffering persecution. If I don't want to suffer persecution... I'm sorry... They're the same place. If I don't want to suffer persecution, I'm no longer living godly in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Lord Jesus is talking to them here. He's saying, do not fear the things that will happen to you. He's asking them, stay where you are. I know it's hard. I know you're being persecuted. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And this is one of the two churches that the Lord Jesus doesn't really warn them with some sort of judgment that will happen if they fail. But there is a consequence Okay, it's it's uh, it's suggested in those words, and I will give you the crown of life. Meaning, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is something that comes if you're faithful until death. Now, what is this crown of life? Well, first of all, it's not the crown of a king. In the Greek, there's different words. There's the crown of a king, and that's a crown that Jesus wears. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And there's the crowns of victors. The Olympics are going to be happening later this year, and when they do, if you win a tournament, you get a medal. And that's great. Well, in those days, if you won something, you would get this, this uh, wreath crown that you'd wear on, and it would really show that you were a victor. It shows that you're a champion. It shows it's a way for people to appreciate you. You're a really great runner. You know, we want you to wear this thing. It signifies an achievement. And that's, and that's the crown that the Lord Jesus is talking here it signifies an achievement. And what it tells me is the Lord Jesus, God, appreciates a willing to suffer for him so much, he is going to recognize us for that. And it's going to be an eternal recognition. For your willingness to suffer for him here, there will be eternal recognition in heaven. You will have the crown. The crown that signifies that you were willing to suffer unto death but I, I believe the Lord Jesus appreciates us for any kind of suffering we're willing to experience for him. We're, we're, it's something we're doing for him, and the Lord Jesus appreciates it, and he wants He wants us to know that he appreciates it, will appreciate it forever. There's uh, uh, My favorite quote of uh, Jim Elliot is this. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, I can't keep my life. You know, if I'm really careful and live in a bunker all my life and stash a lot of food, maybe I'll make it to 70 or 80 or 90, but I can't keep it. I'm going to die. Well, how much better to give it for the Lord to get an eternal reward that I cannot lose? Alright, the next church, starting in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things, Says he who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The next two churches have some uh, things in common, some a couple of problems in common, but there is a distinction in how the Lord Jesus is writing to them. And so we're going to focus in this particular church on a few words. The first word has to do with the description of the Lord Jesus in verse 12. He describes himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And it says later on, actually it said in chapter 1 that it, it comes out of his mouth. Anybody guesses what it might be? And it's actually stated very clearly later on in Revelation what it is. It is the word of God. It is the word of God. Jesus is... The Living Word of God. This book is the written Word of God. And it really represents Jesus as someone who is, who is just intimately connected with the Word of God. He, we know He actually is the Living Word of God. But in particular, He's connected with what is said in the Bible. Okay, why is that important? Well, there's a couple of key words here that, that show this. In verse 14... But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And it, it pops again later on in verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolait- Nicolaitans. Now to people to whom this word doctrine is this mystery word. what does doctrine? It simply means teachings. There were teachings. There was teachings of Balaam, teachings of the Nicolait- Nicolaitans. Sorry. It's not a Hebrew word so I'm not good in saying that. It's a Greek word. But... uh the, the teachings that the Lord Jesus is addressing here—it was the teaching of not taking the Word of God seriously. Okay, you can think of Balaam and the stories in the Old Testament. The Nicolaitans uh, were known. There's a, f- a few things written about them, uh, not in the Bible but uh, in historical books. And it's clear that there were people who believed let grace abound, you know, let let our sin abound that grace might superabound over it. Basically. The Lord Jesus died for us, he's forgiving us our sins, and we can go and do whatever. We can sin that God will show how gracious he is by forgiving us even more sins. Right, well, Paul said, may it never be. And the Bible is very clear that God is holy, and he doesn't accept uh, us ignoring his commandments about the things we need to do. He, he says in his word things like, do not lie, do not steal. We need to take that seriously. We need to obey. And what it really comes down to is taking the word of God seriously. Not glossing by, well, I I got Jesus and I believe I'm saved by grace and I'm not really sure about what the rest of the Bible says, so I'm going to set it aside. Well, that's the attitude the Lord Jesus is fighting against here, And he says this. This is his warning to them. Verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, that's another interesting idea, fighting with the sword of his mouth. Well, remember, the sword of his mouth is the word of God. And to just remind you uh, how powerful the word of God is, like, there's actually a couple of things to think about. One, well, by the words of God, the heavens and the earth were created. Okay, so uh, however solid you think you are in this houses and this earth you're standing on, the word of God is more solid. Okay. Also, at the end of the book of Revelation, when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth to judge mankind, all the armies of the world will be gathered against him, and it says they will all be slain by The sword, the same sword that proceeds out of his mouth. The word of God. He will speak and they will die. There's no fighting. Okay. Now, in particular, really in this context, I think about this. I will fight against them with the word of my mouth. I really think about this book. You know, this book isn't just a book that you read and, oh, that's great information I kind of enjoyed it or I didn't think very much of it. This is a book with consequences. This is a book that if you do what it says, certain things happen to you. If you don't do what it says, certain things happen to you. It will have a real impact on your life. And what I think the Lord Jesus is is speaking about here is people who ignore things that his word says, the consequences of what his word said will happen to them will happen to them. There's a a verse that says, uh, honor your father and your mother that you shall live long on the earth. And... uh, there really is a consequence of honoring your father and your mother and living long on the earth. Because if you don't, you're probably not going to listen to them. You're going to run out to the street and you're going to get run over. And there's, there's many ways in which the consequences will happen. Same way, there's going to be consequences to a, a lifestyle, choosing in your life to do the things that God in his word says not to do. And that's going to come upon you. All right. Uh, the next church, verse 18... And to the angel of the church in Thyatira Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works." Alright, so as I said, this church and the other one have something in common. They have the same sins mentioned. The difference in the previous church, it had more to do with them teachings, the false teachings regarding them. In this church, it's more really the doing, the really practicing sins. Now, the Lord Jesus describes himself as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And again, brass is a symbol of judgment. And what the Lord Jesus is saying here, I am the one... Who judges? Okay, I see your sin and I will judge sin. Now, again, we realize, you know, true believers are not going to go to hell, but at the same time, the Lord Jesus is not going to allow us to just be lax about sin in our life. We need to do something about it. We need to repent. We are going to stumble into sin as believers, but we shouldn't get into the attitude that it's somehow okay and continue on to do it. Um, Right. Uh, it's interesting here, the particular sins that are being brought, uh, and they're repeated in both cases, have to do with sexual immorality and with um, eating meats offered to idols. And in both cases, sexual immorality and uh, various forms of idolatry are really the, the type of sins that people really refuse to recognize. People generally will tend to agree with you that what God says is wrong is wrong, lying, stealing, cheating. But sexual immorality, uh, you know, let people do whatever feels good to them. That's not what the Bible says. Okay, but that's the way people think. And it tends to get into the church. I, I remember being shocked for the first time when I had a co-worker. And uh, he he uh, had a girlfriend, and the girlfriend uh, became pregnant. They had a child together. And later I learned that she is a Sunday school teacher. and And that just really... You know, appalled me, but it really shows how it's really entered into the church. People say, "Well, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody, whatever you're doing is okay." Well, the Bible says it's wrong. And it's interesting how God tends to couple it a lot of time to idolatry. What's idolatry? Idolatry is when you give some somebody or something a place in your heart that belongs only to God. Whenever there's something out there, whether it's a person or a thing, that's more important to you than God, that's idolatry. It's a place in your heart that you're giving, belongs to God, you're giving it to something else. Adultery, well, God, Lord willing, has somebody that should be your husband and your wife. And a sexual relationship is something that belongs between you and them. And when you do it in any other context, you're basically taking away from them something that should be theirs. It's a place, something that really should belong to them, and you're taking it and you're giving it to somebody else. It's, it's a similar thing. And again, in both cases, people tend to refuse to acknowledge those things as sins, but God sees, and he recognizes that as a sin. Well, what's going to happen to people who persist in, in sinning in this way? It's something probably every believer here has experienced. Uh, the Lord Jesus says it th- says this. He says, um, I will kill her children with death, and the churches... Sorry, let me go one, one back. Verse 22 Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. The Lord Jesus will come and personally make your life miserable in some way unless you repent of your sin. It's, it's, uh, the word applied to it in the scriptures is chastening. This isn't uh, eternal judgment for our sins, but God will come and in some way make your life uncomfortable and make you realize that you're, you're off. You're not doing the right things. You're sinning against him. There's a good verse in Hebrews. Sorry, let me find me. I, uh place the notes over here. Save us uh, turning over there. All right, I'm going to have to quote it. I didn't write it down. See how my memory verses are today. It says this, no chastening is is uh, pleasant at the present, or feels good at the present, but afterward it yields the fruit of righteousness. And it also says in the same chapter, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he uh, scourges every son whom he receives. The idea is the Lord Jesus wants the best for us, and the best for us is by turning us away from sin. And I said it's something I assume everybody here experienced because I've experienced it in my life. And I remember... One particular case I still lived in the access house in those days and uh we had something new they put an internet throughout the house and uh some people wanted to share the games with people and say they would put uh they had a place they would save on the, on the network uh games that really uh were pirated because you would download the games without playing them without paying for them and I kind of felt I shouldn't, but I went ahead and did, and I downloaded the game, and I kind of felt, you know, this is not what I should be doing, but I spent the evening playing it, and uh, I don't know how you guys floss your teeth, but in those days, I had this thing that kind of looked like a fork that you, you tie the floss between, and you can, these days, I just hold it with my hands. I don't know why I'm telling you how I'm doing it, but... <laughs> It was significant the other way, you know, having that fork, you know, so I I was so into the game that I was playing it while I was flossing my teeth. You know, and oops, I moved the floss a little too hard, it hits one of my teeth and my tooth breaks. And it was very refreshing how immediately I knew that that was the Lord's finger putting his finger upon me. What are you doing? and uh, it was really also amazing of how powerful it was because I knew I wasn't doing something right but that's really helped me stop playing deleted the game off my computer and avoided, you know at least for a long while as I said, we're still sinners, we're still stumbling to sin but it's really a very powerful tool that the Lord uses, he touches our life in some way makes us realize that what we're doing right now is wrong, we're in sin it helps us change and really straightens us out and that's why it says, whom the Lord loves he chastens and rebukes because he wants the best for us. Okay, next church. Now we're in chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. All right. So here Jesus is described as the one with the seven spirits of God. And don't get alarmed or confused about there being seven spirits of God. There's only one spirit of God. The book of Revelation has a lot of uh, numerical symbolism in it. And it really uses the word the seven spirits to represent the perfection of the Spirit of God. So so this is the one that has the Spirit of God. Well, What does that have to do with Jesus and uh, this particular church? I think of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was uh, in Israel before uh, Jesus arrived on the scene or before Jesus started his ministry. And he called people to repent of their sins. And he baptized people in the Jordan River or maybe in other areas that that had water in them. And people started thinking maybe this is the Messiah and they came to him and they said, are you, are you the Messiah? And he said, no. Uh, but, you know, I am just baptizing you with water. But there comes one whose shoelace I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in water. And it's clear from, from other passages. It really talks about the fact that the Lord Jesus will give us the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist told people they are sinners and told them that they needed to repent, but he couldn't give them the power to resist sin, to overcome sin in their lives. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, he gave us the power to overcome sin in our lives. We can now live a life that is godly, that pleases God. We could never do it. Nobody can do that without the Spirit of God in them. We have the Spirit of, of God. We can do real things for God. We can really live a life that's pleasing to God. And that's that's what he expects us to do with it. Well, what's the problem? Well, they're not doing it. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. Uh, I'm going to read a verse from Romans. It says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And in Galatians it says that the Spirit, spirit uh, fights against the flesh, and the flesh, flesh against the Spirit We as believers have two natures in us. We have the old nature, which is the flesh. And we have the new nature, or the Holy Spirit of God, that's in us, that prompts us to do the things that God wants us to do. And we actually have a say in the matter. Are we going to do what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, or am I going to do what the flesh wants me to do? And this passage says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And that's what was happening to this church. They were resisting the Holy Spirit, they were grieving the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was having less and less influence in their life. And the Lord Jesus saying, was basically saying, you are dead. You're not living a life that's pleasing to God. I'm looking at your life, I see nothing in it. I see no evidence of God in it. And, uh, and this is a real travesty, that God gives us this ability of living a life pleasing to him. And we choose to ignore that and live a life after the flesh. It's a real travesty. Alright, well what's the warning to this church? The warning to this church is this. In verse, in the end of verse 3, he says this, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. All right, what does that have to do with it? Well, we are to be watching for the Lord Jesus' coming, and his coming should be a uh, source of great joy for us. When that actually happens, we should be shouting with joy. What's going to happen to these people when Jesus comes? He says, I'm going to come at an hour you don't expect. And I'm going to be like a thief. Meaning, they're going to be ashamed. They're they're literally, if you can believe it, they're going to regret that Jesus has arrived. Because their life was anything but Jesus in it. And that's a really good, good test for me when I'm doing something, is do I want the Lord Jesus to come right now? Or am I going to be sad if the Lord Jesus shows up at this moment? Well, if it is, I shouldn't be doing it. I shouldn't be doing it. We should rejoice at the thought of the coming of the Lord Jesus, not be ashamed by it, and that's the consequences of, of living a life that's void of God in it. Is you will be ashamed when the Lord Jesus arrives. All right, uh, verse seven. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: This thing says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts. And shots and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. All right, to this church, the Lord Jesus introduces himself as he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. Again, it's kind of a mysterious phrase, and I had to think about this one for a while. But really what he talks about is Jesus' authority and power and character to uh give us opportunities of serving him. It talks about the open door. In the scripture a lot of time an opportunity of serving God is described as an open door. Jesus is the one who has the authority to give us a ministry. He has the power to really open it to us so we can really accomplish something for God. And he's holy and he's true. He's not going to go back on it. If he gives you a ministry, he's going to be faithful. He'll 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 not take away uh the results that should be yours if you follow and persevere in the ministry that He has given you. Uh, there is, again, in this is the other church that there's no particular warning as far as, you know, something bad is going to happen to you unless you deal with it. But there is there is again the the consequence is, is a loss of reward. In verse eleven, it says, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. There is sometimes a temptation to give up on a ministry that the Lord Jesus gave to us. It could be that they're going through a really dry time when there's no results. I remember I taught a Bible study in the Axe House for a number of years. And at the beginning there was some fruit. I don't, I don't see him here. That was Andy. It was kind of an early fruit of that study. And then for a while there was nothing. There seemed to be nothing happening there. It seemed like I was just wasting my time, Monday night after Monday night going and teaching the Word of God. Well, in the last year, I think it lasted about five years. The last year, about three or four people got saved with that study. Oh, Somewhat, somewhat through the influence of that study. So there was a fruit there. You need to persevere in the ministry the Lord Jesus gives you to reap the fruit that's at the end. And that's what the crown, again, a crown is that of recognition. The Lord Jesus will recognize you for your service for here, uh, for Him here below. Okay, we have an opportunity to do something that will please God and that will count for eternity. But if we give up on a ministry too early because it gets too hard or we don't see enough fruit, then we're gonna lose that crown. We're going to lose that crown. All right. Our last church. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Alright, so here the Lord Jesus reveals himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I really like the title of the Lord Jesus, the Amen. And the word Amen is a word that that we're supposed to use when God says something. And it shows that we're in full agreement with what God says, Amen. Well, Jesus is in full agreement with what God does. I, I love uh, some some of the verses about the Lord Jesus. Uh, there's a verse about him that says, says this, The zeal for your house has eaten me up. The Lord Jesus went to the temple and he saw people not doing in the temple what they should be doing. Instead of worshipping God, they were selling stuff and trading money and doing things. And the Lord Jesus just threw them all out of the temple. And it says that's when his disciples remembered or realized this was written about him. The zeal for my father's house has eaten me up. He had such a heart for the things of God. And when he saw people not doing it, not, not respecting God, not having their heart for the things of God, it made him, in this passage, it says literally physically ill. He says this, I want to vomit you. They're part of the body of Christ. but I'm Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. What's the issue here? Well, this is the issue. It says, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. What's the issue? Well, they're not the amen on the things of God. They're not interested in the things of God. These are believers and they've lost interest in the things of God. And the Lord Jesus is saying, you guys are making me sick. Because he is so hot for the things of God to see us so cold and uncaring about the things of God. Makes him, makes him physically sick. He wants to throw us up. He doesn't want us to be part of his body anymore. And really that's the consequence. The consequence of of persevering in this not having a heart for the things of God is loss of fellowship with him. He really removes himself off from you. Okay? That's why we see him at the end of the book knocking on the door from the outside and saying, basically, let me in. But to let him in, they have to change. They have to start respecting the word of God. I mean, have to start start having a, a serious esteem for the, the things of God. Now, the Lord Jesus says here something interesting. He talks in verse 17, the fact that they're saying that they're rich, they have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he's really touching here about the core issue, the root issue behind the uh, lack of excitement for the things of God. It has to do with the false estimation of the things of the world. They were doing pretty good. Laodicea was a rich city, so they were probably doing fairly wealthy. They had the things of the world. And they looked at the things of the world as having value. And because of that, they were not looking at the things of God. Because they had they had a false esteem for the things of the world. They appreciated having a good job and a good salary and you know a comfortable home. And all the things that the world offers us. And because of their appreciation of that, they were not appreciating the things of God. And it's that false sight, wanting the things of the world, that distracts our attention from the things that have true value. That's why the Lord Jesus later talks about, "Come to me and get for me two gold, two eye salve, two clothing, things that have real value, instead of to the rubbish, you guys." I mean, here they are with the things of the world, thinking they have it so well. And the Lord Jesus is looking at them, and you guys don't realize how bad you have it because all you have are the things of the world, which I'm going to destroy. They're worthless. Why not come to me and get the things of God, the things that have true value in them? Have an eye, have a mind for the things of God. All right. Uh Quickly now, uh, let me go ahead and read the, the last verse here, the last couple of verses for this church. He says this, to, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame, and sat down with my father on his throne. All right? This is really, uh, there's verses like this to all the churches. We skipped over them. But really what the Lord Jesus was doing is he was encouraging them. I mean, they are struggling, Okay? We are struggling, and we need encouragement. And uh, it reminds me of a uh, Friday. Friday, I went to uh, one of my vendors. I have to stop them a lot of time on my way to work, and ask one guy there, "How are you doing?" He said, "It's Friday." And I went to my work after that, and I asked a couple of other people, "How are you doing?" "It's Friday." And uh, you know what it means? It means, you know, they're already thinking about the weekend. It's like, okay, at least it's Friday. I can make it through because. I have all these plans for the weekend. I'm going to have a barbecue. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to relax. I'm going to sleep in. It's Friday. So it's okay. Well, this life can be hard. We can go through tough trials. And the Lord Jesus doesn't want us to be, you know, sad and moping through it. And He gives us a real hope to set our eyes on so that we can go through the difficult things here with a good attitude. And, and that's what he was giving the churches. He was giving them little nuggets of what heaven's going to be like. Thinking, think a little bit about this. And that's going to help you get through this trial. To him who overcomes. We do have these trials. We have these obstacles. We need to overcome them. Here's something to think about to help you make it through. Okay. And with that, let's go ahead and turn to the uh, second to last chapter of the book of Revelation. Chapter 21. I promise I won't go in as much detail through chapter 21 and 22. Realize that everybody is ready to, uh, go out and have their lunch. But really, in the end of of chapter 21, which really, uh, sorry, chapter 21 and 22, the end of the book, the end of the Bible, really God gives us the most detailed view we're going to have of heaven. And it's there for us. You know, don't avoid it. (laughs) God put it there so we will think about heaven. And we will have something that helps us get through the trials that uh, this life is offering us. So let's start in verse twenty, uh, verse two of chapter twenty-one. Actually, uh, chapter one of, of uh, verse one of chapter twenty-one. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Alright so John is here beginning to see heaven and uh, sees a new heaven and new earth and he sees a city coming down from heaven and it says very specifically about this city In verse 3 it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. It's going to be a place where God dwells with people. People are going to dwell with God. That shouldn't be too much of a surprise. We had some hints of that. The first one is actually, uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he says this, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. That was really one of his last promises for his disciples. I'm going to go prepare a place. And it's going to be a place where you and I can be together. And that's that's what this place is going to be like. Now, the fact it's a city also shouldn't be a surprise. There were actually hints of that in the book of Hebrews. I don't see Dave here, so maybe nobody else would remember. But it says that Abraham was waiting for a city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. And it says later on in the same section that God is not ashamed, for he has a city prepared for them. Okay, so it is going to be a city, this place, that where we are going to dwell with God. And uh, it's it's interesting. There's a couple of verses here later on. Jesus says it is done, but uh, people a lot of time will say this, and I, I don't fault them because heaven will be a wonderful place. They say, you know, it it took God only seven days to create the earth, and look how wonderful it is. And I think about the fact that God had, you know. Two thousand years to prepare, prepare heaven for us. Well, it doesn't really work like that. God doesn't really need two thousand years, and it very specifically says here that that He that he already has built this city, and that's why Jesus says here later on, it is done. The city already exists. The place is there. We're just not there yet. It's the same as a traveler that goes to a faraway place. Well, the place is already there. In the same way, this this place that God will dwell with men is already there. This city already exists. It's a place that already exists. Uh, Okay, let's uh, skip to verse 9. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven, from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal." So John first saw the city go down, and now God sends an angel to give John the nickel tool of the city. He's going to get to actually see a little bit, and because of that we get to see a little bit of what this city is going to be like. The city that's going to be a place where God is going to dwell, and we're going to dwell. And there's there's really uh, two main things that really stand out. I'm not going to go in detail here. One is the size of the city. It says that the city is going to be about 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles tall. And uh, if you don't know what 1,500 miles is, look at the map of the United States and basically cut the United States in half. Because it's about 1,500 miles between the border of Mexico and Canada And the United States is about 3,000 miles long or or wide. So if you take about half of that, that's going to be the size of this city that John saw coming out of heaven. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Somebody did a calculation once and, and figured that there's going to be at least a cubic mile of space for every believer that ever lived. So talk about... You know size. If if we're t- concerned about the size of, of the mansions that Jesus is building for us, there's no limit of space. You feel it in uh, the San Francisco area. Real estate is tight. There isn't a lot of space. There's not going to be lack of space in this city. Now, not you know God will have it designed perfectly. Don't worry about what it's going to be like exactly. But there's not going to be a lack of space. Uh, the other thing that really comes to mind is really the building materials of this city. Uh, you look through here. And it's built out of, of gold and precious stones. And that kind of blows our mind because we don't think about gold and precious stone being used as a building material. They're jewelry. And they're usually very small or they get really expensive. But God tells us that this city is going to be built out of precious stone and gold. And and the verse we read describes it like this. It says, Having the glory of God and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. If you've seen See how beautiful these stones can be, like as you go, you would go through it in your own time and look at these different stones. I mean, it's just going to be amazing the beauty of this uh, that this city is going to have. All right, uh, jumping to chapter 22 and verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp, no light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And, uh, Quickly, there's a couple of verses here I appreciate. I, I didn't grow up in a city; I'm a country bumpkin, and uh, people sometimes ask me, "Didn't you love that city? Isn't this a beautiful city?" And it's hard for me to really see cities as, as beautiful because I really love the world of nature. To me, that's what be- Yosemite—that's beautiful. You know, San Francisco. People say it's a beautiful city, but to me, it's a city. Well, the New Jerusalem is not going to be like that. Okay, it talks about from the front of God there's going to be a river. Of life proceeding. And it talks about trees being there. And he talks about the fact there's not going to be a curse. Why does it say there's not going to be a curse? Well, the time the curse happened was when they were in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden with all the beautiful things. They sinned against God. That's when the curse came. And God says in the Bible that this curse will be removed. Which means the city of Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem will be also paradise. Will also be the Garden of Eden. I mean, it's not just going to be stones and gold and all those things. I mean, you're going to have everything that was in the Garden of Eden going to be in this city that comes out. That's going to be 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And all these things are beautiful, but really the most important thing is in verse 4. It says, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their forehead. What will it be like to see him? To finally look in his face? There's a, there's a poem I liked as I was preparing to this. I was just going to read it in closing. It says this, O holy Lamb of God, with your own blood, you paid the price for all my sins. What wondrous love is this I see, that you would stoop to die for me. What Raise me up above the mud to walk the streets of gold one day. Who else could dream of such a thing? Who else could full salvation bring? Yes, more wonderful than all to me are you, beloved Bridegroom. Face to face, I soon shall see. Lord Jesus, we confess as uh, we think about uh, your desire for holiness in, in your church. We think about the fact that you purchased us to be with you. And, and Lord, uh, you are not satisfied until we with you in glory shall be and see the glory that is yours. We uh, Give you the praise, Lord, we say that we love you and that you're worthy of our eternal love. In your name, amen.